Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. So I have this, or one more week here. Um, last week I talked about Jonah. I'm going to talk about Jonah again. I told Kermit I'll give him a hard time because he came up to me and was like, you're going to talk about Jonah again? Like there's that much more in this story? Like nothing else to say there? He really wanted me to preach the same sermon twice to see, you know, because everybody needs to hear the same thing twice and see if they actually paid attention. Um, but uh, yes, we are talking about Jonah again. And one reason why I also like to look at it is Jonah definitely can be seen as a children's story, a story for kids. But it's not. It's more than that. Uh, so when I look at scripture, I kind of ask three questions. Because my belief is, like, in a book in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. So the first questions I ask is, what is God trying to reveal himself to his people? Because God keeps revealing himself to his people over and over again in scripture. So that book in whatever, in the Bible of whatever you're looking at, is like, okay, God's revealing himself in some way. And then I also want to look at how God is actually interacting with his people. Like, how is he talking to them? What type of interaction does he want? Because sometimes, like, that, even the idea of in the Old Testament early on, when the people are living, when they thought that, like, gods lived in, like, temples, they lived in a place, and God shows up in the middle of a desert in a burning bush, it's like, that's not where he belongs. But God reveals himself like he's everywhere. And then, as followers of Christ, also like to use the filter of Jesus, like, see Jesus in the word of God. Like, Jesus keeps popping up, and who he is keeps popping up throughout all of scripture. So to have that lens in there. So we look at Jonah, that there are these aspects that's in Jonah. I also say, too, when you read the scriptures at one point in your life, you change. You go through new experiences. You go through something else that's difficult at your time period in your life. Or you learn how to look at scripture maybe differently. And so as you read through scripture again new things come up. There's a, an idea, it's the Jewish um, thought of this called, uh, basically is like a surface level reading of scripture, which is good because you should look, open the Bible and God can speak to you. Like we all need that. At times our life is like, I need something from you, Lord. And we read through something and God pulls something out for us. But then there's also these deeper levels of scripture and you read deeper and deeper. And as you look at maybe how the ancient writers wrote and the things that they focused on and how to ask the right questions, like you can have a different layer of scripture. So I want to maybe peel back maybe another layer of scripture today. So if you've never heard the story of Jonah before, I just want to make sure you kind of know what it is. This is my short version of it with my own little kind of commentary on it. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, basically, there's a, a city called Nineveh. It's a city uh, of Assyrians. Assyrians were brutal people, horrible, terrible people. And he sent Jonah to go to this city because God has seen their evil. And so instead of Jonah going to the city, he goes to Joppa and jumps on a boat to go to Tarshish. Like, I'm going to go to Hawaii instead. Hawaii seems much better than going to Nineveh. And so he jumps on his boat, and then God sends this great wind. And their boat storm starts to come, and Jonah goes, I'm going to go take a nap. So he goes to the bottom of the boat and takes a nap. The sailors, on the other hand, they're trying to bail the boat out to keep it from capsizing. And then they remembered, oh yeah, what about this Jonah guy? Because they're praying to their gods and nothing's happening. So they go get Jonah, and they do a thing called casting lots, and the lots point that, Jonah, this is your problem. Like, this is something, what, what are you doing? 
And Jonas, Selene's like, well, I'm running away from God. And he's like, just throw me over the boat. The sailors go, like, they try to row. They try not to. They ask for God's, like, save us. But nothing happens, so they end up throwing Jonah overboard. Over, overboard. And Jonah goes into the water, and it says, like, a great fish came and swallowed him. Chapter 2 of Jonah talks about this poem, kind of like the idea that Jonah sunk down to the, bottoms, the bottom of the ocean, tangled in the weeds. And then he thought of God, thought of God's temple, and prayed, and the fish came. That's when the fish swallowed him. So after this prayer in chapter 2, the big fish spits Jonah out on land, which would be awesome to see, whatever that might look like. Um, I was, I'm hoping for distance. That's what I'm hoping for. And so then Jonah rose, and he goes to the great city of Nineveh, and says, goes and re, um, says, destruction's going to happen in 40 days. And the people of Nineveh hear what he says, and they repent. They throw sackcloth on. And everybody hears Jonah's words starts to repent. The, the king of Nineveh also hears it, and he tells everybody in the whole city to repent, to wear sackcloth, to fast for three days, or f- fast food and fast water. And God hears their cry, and God turns away his destruction from Nineveh. This is where I wish the story ended almost, because it's like, oh, this is a beautiful story. Like, people change. But the author is kind of pointing to something else. And so it talks about Jonah. So Jonah's really upset, says that he wants to die because God saved Nineveh. So he goes up on this hillside, he builds this tent that overlooks the city, or it's their shade. And then there's this interesting story about that there is a plant that God makes grow and also gives Jonah shade. And then that plant gets eaten by a worm and it dies. And there's this conversation between Jonah and God and we are left with no conclusion of if Jonah changed or not. So today we're going to focus a little bit more on maybe the kind of the end of the story of maybe something that we can take away of this conversation between God and Jonah. I do want to say, so last week when you talked about the plant, that's also for saving Jonah from his evil. And one thing I really, like, for me that made a big difference, um, I'm going to read this, there's a passage from C.S. Lewis that I really like. It says, we might think that God wanted a simple obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. That Jonah isn't just about this idea of changing behavior. It wasn't that when he went and got up after he got spit out of the, the big fish and did what he's supposed to do, that was the end of the story. It wasn't just about his behavioral change, he did the right thing. That there's something more going on than that. I know like within religions, in certain groups of people, there's always like these set of laws or set of rules to follow. And I think there's a piece that throughout all of scripture, God keeps pointing like there is laws, there's a, there is something that binds us together about how we act. But the part of it is not just that you do the right thing, that you say the right thing, you act the right way. I know it's easier to get in a group of people in different churches. As long as as you act the right way, everything's good. It seems like God cares about us a little bit more than that. He cares Jonah a bit more than that. Even though Jonah was obedient, God's still like, there's still something, I'm still going to save you from your evil. And so I had pointed out like this idea of evil kept popping up and cop- popping up. That's one way the authors used to like, pull your attention to something. And so there's repetition that happens. 
So we're going to look at this repetition of another phrase that Jonah uses. So go ahead and pull up the first person, Jonah, there. So when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Let's go off this premise that Jonah's not being dramatic. <laughs> you could take that way. It's like, uh, if you have kids at all, sometimes like, oh, I didn't get my whatever candy, I'm going to die. Or I can't watch this television show, I'm going to die. Uh, no, it's like, he's not, he's not being dramatic here. There's actually a piece of him that is saying like, I want to die. And maybe we can phrase it in this way of I don't want to live in a world where blank, you fill in the blank. Because we have it, see it in Jonah earlier on when he's on the boat in Tarshish. It's like, just throw me overboard. He isn't asking God to save him. He's just saying, it's better for me just to die. Why? Like, what is going on in a way that Jonah's like, this is much, I'd just rather die. So look at Jonah starting in verse three here, or chapter three, end of chapter three. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did it not, sorry, and he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this what I had said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. There's something going on here when Jonah looks at the mercy of God and says, I don't want to live. So this is actually, he's quoting a verse from Exodus. It's not his words, it's something that he's quoting. And so the passage in Exodus, what it's taking from is, this is after Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and he had the tablets. And while he was on Mount Sinai getting the Ten, or ten Commandments from God, uh, the Israelites down below were building a golden calf, and building an idol, which displeased God, wasn't good. And so after kind of this incident, you can read about it more, that this is what Moses wrote after that whole that, that golden calf scenario. And so we'll read it here. So Moses, I mean, Jonah does only quote the first part of um, what, what Moses says, but I'm going to read the whole section. It's just two verses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, sounds familiar, and abiding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness from thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment on the fathers of the children and on the grandchildren to third and fourth generations. So in kind of a Jewish tradition, there's actually what they call the 13 attributes of mercy or the 13 attributes of God taken from the section of scripture. And I want to look over them today and they are in your notes. Maybe as I read them and we talk about them a little bit, Maybe there's one that you just need to pay attention to. Maybe there's an as- aspect, an attribute of God that like you need to hear for your life right now at this time. Something that you need to write down to remember 
because of what's going on in your life. And so we'll start off with the first one here. The Lord. God is merciful before a person sins, even though aware that the future evil lies dormant within him. If you know yourself, you know you're forgiven, but there's still stuff that you struggle with. God still is merciful. The Lord God is merciful after the sinner has gone astray. That after we've been walked away from God, he's still merciful. God, a name that denounced power as ruler over nature and humankind, indicating that God's mercy sometimes surpasses even the degree indicated by this name. That the all-powerful God, his mercy is even almost more powerful than that. Compassionate. God is filled with loving sympathy for human frailty, does not put people into situations of extreme temptation, and eases the punishment of the guilty. Sounds almost like what we hear that God does not give us temptations that we can't bear or trials that we cannot overcome. Gracious. God shows mercy even to those who do not deserve it. He's consoling the afflicted and raising up the oppressed. There's this old idea within scripture that kind of carries through that Jesus even talks about with the idea of those that are oppressed, those that don't have anything. It's almost like they deserve it, that they're not blessed by God. Sometimes you feel that way, don't you? That you're not maybe like because of life going on. This life, like this last week has been my first world problems. My washing machine died and then my dishwasher tried to catch on fire. Then my son's 4-H pig also died. Like one thing after another, my daughter got hit with a softball in the face and she has like two black eyes. Like my first question was almost the idea of like, God, what did I do wrong this week? Like, what, what do I need to, like, repent for? Like, I must have done something wrong. But I got merciful, even though for the oppressed, it's not that I did anything wrong. I've searched my soul. Hopefully, I did anything wrong. I'll repent if I figure that part out. But the idea that we still have a compassionate God, even for those that maybe, like, the place in life that they're at, they don't seem like they're blessed. Slow to anger. God gives the sinner ample time to reflect, improve, and repent. Man, we need to hear that. That God gives us time. It's not this mad immediate like discipline right away. You time to figure things out. He's slow to anger. Abundant in kindness. God is kind toward those who lack personal merits, providing more gifts and blessings than they deserve. If one person's behavior is evenly balanced between virtue and sin, God tips the scales of justice towards the good. We figure like, oh, I just want to make sure I do my life, do more good than evil. But we're at a place where it seems like balance, that we have a God who tips it towards good. Truth. God never reneges on his word to reward those who serve him. Persevere of kindness for thousands of generations. God remembers the deeds of the righteous for the, the benefit of the less virtuous generations of offspring. Like I think of like how my parents have prayed for me how they have sought God, and I get the blessing from that. Forgiver of iniquity. God forgives intentional sin resulting from an evil disposition as long as a sinner repents. Forgiver of willful sin. God allows even those who commit a sin with a malicious intent of rebelling against and angering him the opportunity to repent. It's like, God, I know you told me to do this, 
but I'm going to do what I want to do anyways. And I'm going to stand against you, God. And God still goes, have mercy for you, have compassion for you. Even though you try to challenge me, I will still forgive. Forgiver of error, God forgives a sin committed out of carelessness, thoughtfulness, and apathy. Even though we like, make mistakes that we don't know what we do, we do wrong, God's there also to forgive. Who cleanses? God is merciful, gracious, and forgiving, wiping away the sins of those who truly repent. However, for one does not repent, God does not cleanse. Like it's still on our part, it's still on our choice to ask God to cleanse us, for us to repent. But when we do, we have a God, he's merciful. There is one of those today that you need to hear, that you need to jot down, write it, put it on a mirror, put it on something you see all the time to remember, like, this is the God I serve. We can't forget about these attributes. But there's something interesting that Jonah does in this passage, that Jonah quotes this Exodus verse, but he actually changes the words. He leaves something out. He leaves out the word truth. Jonah knows the scripture. Like he's a prophet of God. So there has to be a reason why that's the case. Uh, Jonah's, Jonah's dad, uh, he's the son of Amorite. I think I said that right. Probably not. Um, but it's, that, word, that name is, means truth. Like Jonah is supposed to be the son of truth. But there's something about that he leaves out. And this is kind of like a conclusion that I've come to. When Jonah says the idea of like, I want to die, there's something tied to that word truth there that makes him think like, I don't want to live in a world where there isn't truth. And I might more interpret like the idea, I might live in a world where there isn't fairness, there isn't justice, there isn't consequences for the actions. So we have the Ninevites that we know are terrible people and horrible people. And Jonah knows that God is merciful. But does Jonah want to live in a world where people don't get what they deserve? Think about it like this. Something, happens, something horrible happens to a family member of yours. And that person is caught and go to trial. And the trial's gone on for a while. And so the judge comes to you and goes, hey, if you decide to like not have this case go on anymore to let the person go, well, let's do that. Maybe it's even harder than that. Maybe that you're sleeping at night and God comes to you in a dream and says, hey, that person that did that horrible, terrible thing to your family member, like he asked me for forgiveness and I'm going to forgive him. And I also want you to forgive him too. Or when you go to the judge tomorrow and say, hey, like, let's just let this go. Man, how hard would that be? To put yourself in that position of the person that you know so well, the terrible thing that happens to them, because that person on trial, they deserve the consequences. I might lighten up for myself a little bit and say, like, you know what? I really want mercy on people. Like, I think of you, like, a few people in my life over history, the history of my life, and go, like, I do want mercy for them. I want them to turn towards God. But before that happens, Lord, I really want them to suffer the consequences. Yeah, like, let this happen first, let them have to be punished, and then you can forgive them and we can work towards a better future.
So Jonah sits in a place like, I'd rather die than live in a world where there's not consequences to what you actually deserve. But then we have this whole story of the plant. The shade, bring out those evil. But what we think about this plant, this plant is like a miracle. Like it doesn't actually deserve to live. Like God created it. Go ahead and pull up that next verse in Jonah. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And you should not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. What, how I kind of see this playing out is as Jonah is struggling with this idea of God's mercy, as he's looking over the town, in some ways almost like, will God change his mind in this? That he gets this compassion from God, like this plant that almost gives him like AC, like as it's hot out, he has this extra shade to help him with his despair. And then God sends a worm, and that worm kills off the plant. It's like his compassion that he felt from God is gone. So how I kind of say this is the idea of Jonah doesn't want to live in a world where there is no consequences to what people deserve. But then he also doesn't want to live in a world where there's also no compassion. Like God is using this plant as a way to look at it like, shouldn't there also be compassion in the world? So Jonah is actually read during Yom Kippur. It's a Jewish festival. Um, Yom Kippur is about atonement and um, repentance. And the question is, even the idea of like, why do the Jewish people read Jonah, this idea of repentance or atonement during Yom Kippur? Like, why Jonah? Why this book? Because what we get in the book is not the Israelites repenting. Like, isn't like, hey, we're going to remember our forefathers and the people before us and how they were going one way and they turned away and repented. Because the people in the story that aren't followers of Christ, are followers of God, that are not Israelites, they're actually more Israelite than the Israelites are. So we have the sailors that throwing Jonah over ask for forgiveness for what they've done. We have Jonah going into the great city of Nineveh. And so I like to look at it like this as Jonah's walking in. So I have a four-year-old son uh, that has some pretty good visual images when he doesn't like something. He crosses his arms, his face gets all like kind of mad, like almost every night before bed. Like I have that kid. And he says some mean things to me sometimes. And I can always tell what he's saying, but man, he mumbles and I know it's something that's not nice. And I see Jonah walking into the city almost the same way. And he tells the people of Nineveh, five, it's only five Jewish words, or five Hebrew words. It's only five. Basically, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Now, if you were back on all the other prophets, and even like I talked about like, uh, like Amos last week, if you read through Amos as the, the prophet's talking to the Israelites, he says so many words. A lot of words. God says this, and God says this, and God says this trying to help them change their ways, and they don't listen. We have the Ninevites, that Jonah says five words, and they listen. He's like, what the heck? <laughs> like, 
I tried to do the least amount as possible, and they still turned towards God and repented, and God was merciful for them. Like, he should be seen as the best prophet ever. But where the prejudice doesn't happen with Jonah, it happens with the Ninevites. So we, like, we look at this idea of repentance, this idea of compassion. This book that's read during this time of young prayer, this time... And maybe it's kind of this idea that is that God is looking for a particular people. Something that's a little bit different. Something that says, I'm different than the way that the world perceives things. So there's a, a Hebrew word for compassion. It's also tied to the idea of womb. So when you talk about compassion on something, it, it has an image of a womb. So a piece of a womb, what it says, is that there's potential. There's potential for, for life. So it's tied into this word compassion. Like compassion on a group of people is the idea that they have potential for life. What I love about repentance is that we can look at a stack of things of why we deserve what we deserve. But repentance stands in the middle of that and says, there's something you don't have to live that way. That with like compassion, that on the other side of this, like I see there's potential. I think about like a good mom. Like their kid can do so much wrong, but how do they look at their kid? Like, oh, I see the potential of my son or my daughter that there is still good there. They keep trying to call out that good. My question maybe for this morning for you is this idea, do you want to live in a world where we all get what we deserve? Or do you want to live in a world where there's compassion? And so as we had like a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, we went through like the Kingdom of God series. Like for us being followers of Christ, we are a part of a different kingdom. We're not the kingdoms of this world. And I feel like in our culture right now, there's this idea of the other person is wrong, evil, they have no, no good. You think about it in politics or views about life or whatever that might be, is like your job is to look at the other group and only think about the bad things in their life. They have no potential for good. There's nothing they do is good. They're just evil. I think it's different when you look in, live in the kingdom of God. That there is something different there. So there's a, a marriage counselor, a marriage um, He's a doctor, studies marriages, Dr. Gottman. And he uh, has been studying marriages to the point of where he can look at a couple and with like a high 90% accuracy tell if the couple's going to like, marriage is going to end a divorce or survive. And so his research pointed to like four different things. He calls them the four horsemen of uh, marriage. This defensiveness, it's critical, um, stonewalling, and contempt. And contempt is one of the big ones. So he sees contempt in a marriage. There's a very high likely stand, idea if they don't get help that the marriage is going to end. So contempt is this idea that you don't see good in your partner. It doesn't matter what your spouse does. It doesn't matter what they try. There's no good there. All you see is just their flaws. Followers of Christ, like we have to look at things differently. We have to look around the world in a different way. 
and say, like, I'm going to call out the good. So what I do with uh, couples that come see marriage counseling, I'll have them do like a gratitude journal. You start off by trying to pay attention to the good of the other person. You write down, I haven't write down, you write down three things every day about what that person did that was good. It could have been something as simple as they said something nice to you, like they did the dishes again for the 3,000th time, but you say you're thankful for it. You mentioned how nice they looked that day. Like, it doesn't matter what it is that you're looking for something good. I also do kind of the same thing with someone that's maybe suffering with depression or anxiety. It's to look out through the day and, like, point out the good things. Because we can focus, like, our brains can get set on focusing on all what's wrong, what's evil in the world, what's bad. But we also can train ourselves to look at the world in a different way. And we can look at the world in a way that there are good things. So I grew up in a kind of charismatic background. And some of the things I picked up, I don't know if it was ever taught or not, but the idea almost like in the future, in heaven, that's when things will get good. But I don't believe that's really the message that God speaks to us now. That God actually wants you to have a good life now. Not just behave and do the right thing, but actually to enjoy life. Actually that life is good and there's something good there. And part of changing the way that you think about things, maybe the idea of having compassion on the world around you by pointing out their potential, that also changes you. That you can look at life and it can be good. Yes, there's difficulty and there's flaws and there's hard things, but there's also good things. Like sometimes I'll have, like even do something as simple as right down, I walked outside and the sun hit my skin, which is right now is very grateful for but there's all these small things even through our life that are just good, but we have to see it. I think God cares enough about us to like, hey, our life can be different, but part of it changing the way that we look at life. So I pointed out last week that we see Jonah pop up in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that it's almost the idea that Jesus is a better version of Jonah. Jesus is a greater Jonah. And I think we get it with this idea that we see Christ and he sees the potential of all those around him. He looks at you and goes, you have value and you have worth. You're made in the image of God and you have potential. Enough that he died on the cross for us. So in a moment here, we're going to have communion. If you want to go ahead and get your little communion cup prepped up, prepped. So when we look at these elements in our hands, maybe today that we can be reminded of, we have a God that looked at you and had compassion on you. He looked at the world, instead of destroying the world, what we deserve, that we get kind of the fruit of our consequences. That we have a God that says, I'll take that instead. I will show you that I will die for you so that you know that there is good there. I believe that you have potential. So maybe there's two ways when you look at communion this morning that you can look at it. One is maybe that you need to hear that as you look through those attributes of God that you need to call that out. Reminded these elements, how God views you. Maybe you need to spend a moment too 
maybe like you recognize that there's something of how you look at other people that needs to change. That through communion, through looking at the cross, that we can, ha- can be different. We're not stuck. That God says that you can be different. That's why repentance is there. Repentance is there. Forgiveness is there. Compassion is there. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.